I'm Will Higdon Sudo, and this is the Barney's Podcast, the show that celebrates fashion, style, culture, and most of all, personality. As Senior Director of Creative Services, I produce over 100 photo shoots a year. At Barney's, our approach to image making is always editorial. We really like to take risks on our creative. Someone who definitely knows about taking risks is Philip Bacardi. Women's magazines historically have treated women as though they're one-dimensional kind of beings. So we launched reproductive justice coverage. We covered the election for the first time in Teen Vogue's history. We covered the Black Lives Matter movement. And Teen Vogue just kind of became known for something that it had not been known for. Philip Bacardi's rise in media has been remarkable. At 27 years old, he's the chief content officer for Teen Vogue. He also founded Them, Condé Nast's online community that focuses on queer youth. I wanted to know, how does someone get so far so quickly while making such an impact? How did you get here? <laughs> like, what were the main moments you feel like that defined your kind of, like, journey to this place? Uh, before I even got to college, I knew, first of all, that I chose NYU because I wanted to go to school in a place where my industry would be. So I knew I wanted to work in fashion, and so I chose yeah. NYU strategically about that. And lo and behold, I saw an internship at Teen Vogue open. So I went to Four Times Square. I put on my best, like, five coats of bronzer. I blew my hair out like I used <laughs> Fully to do. Fully painted. Full paint. <laughs> For the background. Like, full GTL, like, meets uh, queer as folk. Like, it was like Amazing. the gay, gay Guido. <laughs> and I walked into Teen Vogue, and I asked for an internship. And I was a part of Teen Vogue for a year and a half in the intern program. I went from there to, you know, just kind of climbing up in, in media. And before I know it, I was 23 years old in the digital editorial director of Teen Vogue. The big thing about my appointment was that I wanted to make sure that Teen Vogue would diversify the kinds of content that we were creating. Women's magazines historically have treated women as though they're one-dimensional kind of beings. And that, so. you know, if I were like a young boy, which I was reading GQ, I would read about politics. I would read a really in-depth celebrity profile. I would read about cars. I would read about sports. And then I would read about fashion. You know, but women's magazines were really only about fashion and beauty with like one feature kind of peppered in there. And so I just really was like, why don't we just give that same kind of content approach to teenagers? So we launched reproductive justice coverage. We launched sexual health coverage. Mm -hmm. We uh, covered the election for the first time in Teen Vogue's history. Uh, we covered the Black Lives Matter movement as it was happening in real time, mm -hmm. which included, you know, Know, calling police departments and trying to find out the status of certain high-profile people who were arrested during demonstrations. And Teen Vogue just be, kind of became known for something that it had not been known for before. Yeah. But we wanted Teen Vogue to better represent the new kind of audience that it had. You know, there's someone really smart um, who I love in the industry, Farron Krenzel, who once said that the genius of Teen Vogue is that, like, every four years it should have a new editor because, you know, someone essentially needs a fresh pair of eyes because it's like your audience graduates from you, you know? Right. So... And, you know, we always hope that our readers stay with us always <laughs> and stay loyal to Teen Vogue. But, you know, it's true. The generations change so quickly. Gen Z, Very quickly now. Yeah, Gen Z has had access to information in an unbridled and unparalleled kind, kind of way. And so the expectations they have for the content they consume, you know, are way higher than what teens were expecting when, you know, Teen Vogue was on the hills with Lauren Conrad. Oh, yeah. So um, this was a, is a very different kind of audience. And so we needed the content to evolve for them. Um, and it was great to be a part of that, uh, a part of that trajectory at Teen Vogue. What was it like seeing kind of that 
your audience at Teen Vogue's reaction to sort of the shift in content? Yeah, it was great. I mean, the, the immediate things that really took off were sexual health coverage. So yeah. we won an award from Planned Parenthood like three months into my job because the sexual health stuff we were doing was performing so well online. And that was an indicator to me that we could do more there. And so that's when we finally started covering reproductive justice, access to birth control, access to abortion, and really taking a stance on that for the first time in the brand's history. And it was important, you know, for us to, to do that because teen pregnancy rates are at an all-time low, largely because of access to contraception uh, under Obamacare and, and also because of Planned Parenthood's efforts nationwide. Yeah. And so we were really um, excited about that. The political stuff, though, was a harder sell, yeah. um, believe it or not. And so initially, it would be really frustrating because you'd spend a lot of time editing a feature and it would get like 300 people clicking on it. Yeah. And as opposed to like writing about Justin Bieber, which could get anywhere from 500,000, you know, and up <laughs> people clicking on it and reading it. So we had to find our groove with politics. And I think that one of the early indicators that we would find success here was in the wake of Nancy Reagan's death, a lot of websites were running slideshows of her best style moments as first lady. Mm -hmm. And uh, because I'm gay, yeah. I knew that the Reagan administration had a pretty terrible legacy during the HIV AIDS crisis. Terrible. And I knew that Nancy had a direct hand in that uh, in a lot of Ronald Reagan's decisions sure. as president. And so we ran a little story called Nancy Reagan Watched Thousands of LGBTQ People Die of AIDS. And that story was our first viral political hit. I remember that story. And I remember that story. I remember the outrage, the hate mail that we got from older people. And I remember all of the Facebook comments from younger people. You know, you'd scroll through. You'd, I would look at their avatar and I'd be like, okay. And they would say, thank you, Teen Vogue. Thank you for this. And I remember Dan Savage shouting it out on his podcast. And I thought, okay, I think we've found something here. So... We kind of necessarily shifted a lot of our political coverage, not to just cover what was happening in the news, but actually to find our distinct point of view and what only we could bring to the table. Um, and, you know, I think that's a large part of the reason that Lauren Duca's op-ed went so viral, Donald Trump is gaslighting yeah. America. Um, you know, other other pieces that we've had go viral include, like, sorry, Andrew Jackson was actually a genocidal racist. Right. Um, we've done, we had a bunch of things, uh, Native American girls for Thanksgiving come to the studio with us, um, where they talked about the, you know, the real history behind Thanksgiving, mm -hmm. where they flipped over a Thanksgiving dinner table, and that went very viral. In the wake of the pole shooting, we had a lot of, Really incredible pieces, but uh, the one that made Fox News the angriest was a piece that was basically pointing out that Islam is not the only culture or, or religious institution, I should say, that has a legacy of homophobia. Mm -hmm. And so we had a Muslim writer kind of dissect America's legacy with homophobia and how the pole shooter wasn't just a, a product of Islam as the media was making him out to be, but also he was a product of America. And so those kinds of things uh, made a lot of people... Uh, pretty upset, but they made our audience more loyal to us than ever before. Incredible. And do you remember the first time you read or fell in love with magazines? Like, was there a feature or something that stuck out to you and when I was a you. kid, I, I remember shortly after coming out, I went to like Borders. Remember that bookstore? Yeah. <laughs> and um, I used to, I, I was trying to find books about being gay, like, you know, like novels. And so I found like Rainbow High and like a couple of other ones. Yeah. But then I made my way over to the magazine rack because I wasn't really happy with what I had found. And I found Out magazine there. And so I picked up Out and I saw a copy of Details and that looked pretty gay to me mm -hmm. even though it wasn't. <laughs> so I picked up Details and then I passed by Vogue. And I saw Vogue 
And I thought, I probably should read about women's fashion because I feel like gay men need to know about women's fashion. You know, Queer Eye for the Straight Guy, Will and Grace, and those are my role models. Those right. are my examples of, of who, who were like me in the media. So I picked up Vogue, and I remember there was some sort of, like, m- like spread on Giselle Bunchen kind of wearing various silhouettes. Like, the, it was this really beautiful, like, fashion history lesson through this, you know— very amazing center of book shoot. And I remember thinking, like, I don't know what Balenciaga is. I I didn't know that, you know, Vuitton or Chanel made clothes. Like, I was so confused. Mm -hmm. And so I got really enamored by Vogue because I felt like I was learning something. I felt like I was escaping. And I was, like, I felt like it was feeding me, you know, in that Carrie Bradshaw kind of way. Right. Uh, And so I I became a really loyal reader of Vogue. I was not a loyal reader of anything else I picked up at the Uh newsstand that that day. And... um, (sighs) There was one time when I was in high school where I remember, like, opening Vogue and kind of flipping through it. And there was this, I believe it was an editor's letter from Anna Wintour where she was talking about marriage equality. And it was kind of, you know, if I was in high school, that was still very much on the vanguard of of talking about marriage equality Mm -hmm. openly. But she was making her stance very clear that, like, she believed in marriage equality and she believed in uh, same-sex marriage. And I remember, like, seeing that. And even though nothing in Vogue indicated to me that anyone in those pages was gay— it never explicitly talked about same-sex relationships or love. I really felt recognized and really seen by that. And so that was a really pivotal moment for me to be to be recognized by Vogue and to feel like Vogue was on your side. And mm-hmm. I thought this is really the power of what publishing is and can mean to to people. Yeah, definitely. I think I had like a similar moment with Queer as Folk. Mm-hmm. And I just remember feeling so like, recognized and like it was the first time I had seen someone like me like on television in that Mm -hmm. way and like really connected with like a story Um, right and I just remember it being really powerful it's so electrifying to I remember watching it and feeling the same thing like oh this is possible like I can live and exist like this and I remember just like watching it super close to the television screen with the volume down, hoping that my dad and mom wouldn't come downstairs and see it. Yeah, I did the same. I taped it. Yeah. Yeah. And I just, um, there is some sort of feeling in being recognized when you're so isolated Mm -hmm. and can feel so alone. That's so incredibly magical. And I think for teenage girls all over the world, you know, I wanted to make sure that I could give that magic to them. Um, and so that's why we've, you know, been really deliberate about representation and and what that means to us and who we're choosing to cover and how we're covering things. Because I want, I want people to feel that same sense of, like, I see myself, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I think it comes across so, so strong when you're looking at both Teen Vogue and, and them. Um, I, no, I think it's incredible. Do you have, is there sort of a, not a plan, but like, because Teen Vogue has evolved so much in the last couple of years, do you guys have like a place that you're going to take it next or are you branching out or what? what's the plan going forward? For us, I think what we've been more immediately focused on is, I guess, not pursuing the rat race of like the digital media landscape. So mm-hmm. trying to avoid covering the same things that every website's covering or every outlet is covering and only focusing on the things that make our editors feel passionate. So that's been an interesting shift. We, you know, basically went from covering up to 70 stories a day to covering up to 30 stories a day. So really making a concerted effort on focusing on quality. The other thing that I think is super important is that, you know, our audience is craving real life experience and and face-to-face interaction with us. 
in dialogue in a way that is is um, encouraging them to be creator and the the viewer. Yeah. You know, so they want to not just be an audience member anymore. So we have the Teen Vogue Summit in June and another one in December. And in June, we're focusing on the midterm elections. And so we're doing this big voting rally. And we have, yeah, we have Emma Gonzalez coming. We have Vice President Al Gore. We have Cecile Richards. And, you know, all of these kind of powerhouses coming together to encourage kids to vote. And I think that that um, really sums up what we hope Teen Vogue is in the future, that it's a real-life ally to you and not just something that exists on your phone. Definitely. I guess we should transition maybe to talking about them. You are the founder and creator of them. What was that like to sort of give birth to, quote-unquote? <laughs> it was very strange and because none of it was expected or and it wasn't a goal that I had. at Like in the beginning of the year, if you would have asked me, hey, what are you going to do this year? What is your wildest dream? You know, it's like, it wasn't even on my radar at the time. It wasn't but on your manifestation board. It wasn't, no. no. And But Anna asked me to lunch, and I remember being terrified and maybe thinking I was getting fired. It was shortly after uh, a little piece we ran about anal sex on Teen Vogue that caused a quite oh, it was right a after stir. That. Yes. <laughs> so we... Um, you know, I went to I went to lunch with Anna, and she basically was, like, checking in and saying, like, you know, what do you see your future looking like at this company? Mm-hmm. Um, which was You're a like, very— do you want to talk about anal sex? <laughs> <laughs> I did not ask Anna <laughs> about anal. Um, but, you know, I, I didn't really know the answer because so much had changed for me since I was an intern at Condé Nast. Mm-hmm. And really— in the past three years, like uh, being a digital editorial director for me felt eons beyond what I could, you know, what I was expecting. I thought I'd be the beauty director of Vogue one day mm. by maybe like 30 or 35. And I was like sitting in front of Anna, eating salmon, getting asked like what my wildest <laughs> dream is. And so I, I Do you told remember her, what you wore? I don't remember what I wore. Okay. No. And I, I actually have to That's say like, like a fluff question, but like, yeah, I was just curious. <laughs> I don't I'm just she, trying to paint the picture. I'm not even sure she cares to be honest what I wear, but um, <laughs> we, um, I it came out of my mouth that like I think that the focus that we have on Gen Z is important. I think that we should, you know, double down on this next generation and I believe that they're the queerest generation ever. I think that gender is the most interesting thing that we talk about on Teen Vogue. Mm. And she agreed and she said, "So what would you do? What would you call it? Who would advertise in it? Who would photograph for it? You know, how would you cover fashion? How would you cover beauty?" You know, what would the tone of the content be? How would you cover politics? Like, what do you think it could be in three to five years? You know, she's just asking so many questions. And I found myself answering them, you know. And and really, as she's asking me the questions and guiding me, I'm forming this idea for something that really became a more coherent proposition. So this wasn't formed at all before your meeting with her? No, this was completely, you know, because she was asking the questions, because she was providing her opinion, I was able to pivot, assess, you know, focus on like what I was passionate about, you know, hear her feedback, hear her critiques, hear her the holes in, you know, what she saw in terms of marketing it. And Anna basically was like, well, that's interesting. And, you know, thank you. So see you, see you soon. <laughs> You're like, so I'm not getting fired? <laughs> yeah, so I wasn't getting fired. And the next morning I was home running late as I always am. And I was trying to make my way into the office, but my phone rang, my cell phone rang. And my assistant was like, uh, Anna's calling from her cell phone. It was, I mean, this was early. It was like 8.30 in the morning, I think. Oh, my God. Um, At what part of your, like, getting ready routine were you in? Like, maybe was wearing a towel. You're like, I was, yeah. Like, yeah, one still out of the shower. And, uh, you know, she answers the phone. Hello, Phil, it's Anna. I've, you know, spoken to the executive team about, you know, your idea, and we want you to work with a business development team on, like, fleshing out a proper budget and a three-year plan. 
And um, that was in June. And in August, I pitched uh, my three-year plan to the board of Condé Nast, including our CEO. Mm-hmm. And uh, two months after that, uh, we launched them by lighting up the World Trade Center in rainbow colors and yeah. celebrating the first independent brand launch at Condé Nast in 14 years. It was major. Thanks. Who, who did you call like after that board meeting? Like, Who was the first person you called? After that board meeting, I actually went. It happened on this, like, on floor forty-two, which is our like uh-huh. executive suite floor. <laughs> yeah, like, dun, dun, dun. Um, and I remember going into the bathroom there, and I actually just cried in the bathroom stall by myself. What? Yeah, I couldn't call anyone. I didn't want to talk to anyone. I just cried because you didn't think it went well, or because you were like so overcome. Like I was so overwhelmed by. You know, those are the most important people in our company. And you look around the boardroom and you see all these people that essentially I've been fearing my whole life, you know, more or less. Like, that's my, those are the people who hold the key to my future in their hands. And um, what I saw was, you know, when doubts arose in the room about the validity of this as a prospect for business or about its future, what I saw was all of these people you know, essentially without me having to intervene or even raise my voice, defend them as a concept, defend the LGBTQ community, say how Condé Nast needed something like this. And um, there's not really, I even get like emotional thinking about it. There's not say, I'm really, getting emotional listening to you. Talk. Um, there's not really, I've never really felt like so supported before. And by so many people who, you know, you really respect. Um, and, you know, Anna especially, you know, to have her sit across from me and defend the brand to her core, you know, and and really believe in it and, you know, ask for an immediate green light, you know, was, um, it was really, really special. I'll That's never so forget it. so powerful. It was, yes. You know, the, the most interesting thing about them is to immediately feel the love and support from the community that it's representing. Mm. Um, and to showcase narratives that really have been, I guess, pushed to the side before from, you know, mainstream media outlets. But the piece of content I'm probably still the most proud of is a video we published called How to Raise a Child. It was a video that basically we found three families from all over the country. Yeah. And we sent one, you know, kind of it camera crew to each family. And, you know, each family had a transgender child. And so instead of us, like, you know, having interviewing just the parents about raising their child, we interviewed the parents and the children together, and we actually had the children ask their parents stuff. So cool. And the video did so well. I mean, it had millions of views on Facebook, and, you know, you read the comments, and you're expecting for all the trolls to come out and play, but I think the beautiful thing about the video was it conveyed the sense of, like, the common thread here is accepting your children and loving your family, and that was the kind of content that we made that permeated through not just the queer community, but also to a straight and cisgender audience who has a lot of curiosity and I guess ignorance about this topic, mm-hmm. but they could relate to the core value that like we should love each other. Oh, cool. At Barney's, we're celebrating pride through a campaign, hashtag what pride means to me. What does pride mean to you? Um, pride to me is a reflection of the, I guess, the evolution of self that I've had in terms of you know, the kind of the trajectory that most of us have with coming out and coming to terms with ourselves, which is everything from self-hatred and self-doubt and trying to conform yourself to fit uh, a kind of like straight and cisgender worldview and then find a way to celebrate yourself as you are eventually, no matter, you know, what that might be. Right. And for me, that's meant being more attuned to and embracing my femininity. Mm. It's meant being able to be more outspoken And also to, you know, openly and unabashedly love my partner. I think for for me, 
you know, pride is really about learning to love yourself and then, you know, finding this kind of sense of community and belonging um, that is surrounded by a bunch of people who want each other to feel validated and recognized. So um, that's that's uh, that's why I love Pride. Did you feel that community when you got to New York or how, yes. you know, you, it was immediate? It was immediate, yeah. You step into to NYU and, and, I, and like I say, it's like, you're surrounded for the first time by people who are just like you. And it's like you no yeah. longer have to look at them through a television screen or hear about them in the newspaper. You're no longer looking at them through a prism of, like, tragedy and HIV-AIDS. Right, you know, exactly. It's like you're, you're just like, seeing people... Philadelphia. Yes, yes, living and loving their lives. Yeah. yeah. Did you... I, I went to Eugene Lang College. Oh, nice. So I you had so, a similar experience, I'd imagine. 100%. I think I, like, picked Eugene Lang based off of... Like, I have to be in New York, Mm -hmm. like, immediately. You know, I was, like, for the same reasons. Like, it was, it just felt like home in that way. And I was, like, surrounded by queer people, and I just loved it. People are always so surprised when I say that, like, New York is the first place I felt safe. Yeah. Um, and But it is, you know, I, I didn't feel safe largely growing up in my house and I don't really consider it my home. You know, Mm -hmm. I don't consider Boston my home. New York is my home. Yeah. I remember getting to New York... And I remember, like, the first week I was here, I just had that same feeling that I felt the first time. I grew up in Washington, D.C., and when I went to the Pride Parade in high school there and being surrounded by my community, I remember having the same feeling, like, when I came to New York, just walking around, that I did when I was really young and went to the parade. Mm -hmm. Um, That's really nice. I remember uh, at Welcome Week, we, like, I had amassed this, like, massive freshman posse of homosexuals. And <laughs> Everyone we, just gravitates towards each crazy. other. It's crazy. We just, like, it was like a magnet. And we all went, we pre-gamed in my dorm room. And um, I we all went to 18 night at Rush. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I just remember looking around at one point in the night, like, really late, like, 4 a.m., <laughs> And nobody was wearing a shirt anymore. Uh-huh. And we were all dancing in the club to, like, Kylie Minogue. And I was like, this is real. Like, this is heaven. You know? Mm-hmm. Like, this is everything I ever dreamed of. Now you can't even get me to leave my apartment on the weekend. I'd rather hang out with my cats. Definitely. So, um, what, do you have any sort of great pride stories that you want to share? Or is there something that um, has stuck out to you as sort of the most memorable pride? Um my most memorable pride is is you know standing outside of the Stonewall Inn when marriage equality passed in New York, and that was a really uh, that was a really magical experience. It was electrifying. I I did the same thing in terms of like rushing down there. And, oh, we were both there. Yeah, and I just remember just feeling the love from so many different directions. And yes, listening to Edie Windsor speak. Yes, yeah, and just like it was a beautiful, beautiful moment. In it New York. really, really, it it truly was, and I. I remember just hands everywhere and hugs everywhere, mm-hmm. just feeling very embraced, yeah, which is very nice. From all directions. It was yes. it was pretty special in that way. Thank you so much. Thank for, you for having me. For being with us and, and participating. It's my pleasure. I hope most of that gets edited out. <laughs> <laughs> The Barneys Podcast is produced by Barneys and Transmitter Media. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show. It helps others find us. Thanks for listening.